Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 13th, 2018. I almost made it to the finish line. Oh! These Easter sermons you've sent me are the worst I've heard since starting this program. I mean, the crop this year is miserable. The only way I can describe it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, sadly, No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, no joke. Um, And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's coming from the stages, the pulpits, and the different places where people are teaching, it's not even close to biblical. It's like miserably off, really like deceitfully, demonically off, the best way I can describe it. So we've come to the end of the week, and uh, (laughs) gotta admit, I... I'm so glad to be done with this week. And the, the previewing of the sermons began last week and just finished today. I want to make sure we didn't miss anybody. And um want to thank all of you that sent in, uh, you know, nominations for this year's contest. And at, like, like every year, we have literally previewed every single uh, Resurrection Easter sermon that has been submitted to us, and there were hundreds and um, it was <laughs> tough road to hoe. I think I'm going to need therapy, uh, <laughs> something like that. And so what we're going to do for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is we will be listening to the last two contestants for our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And i got to tell you, uh, this year's, you know, I've said that this year is like the worst that I've ever heard as far as the total group is concerned. And, and that is not hyperbole. That is literally the case. I am convinced that there are certain sermons, not just one, certain sermons, had they been delivered in years past, they would have won by themselves. But because the group itself is so bad, that, um, you know, a sermon that would have won a year ago by itself, May not win this year, <laughs> so uh, just keep that in mind. I just wanted to kind of let you know. So let's talk about who the uh, the last two contestants are. We are up to contestant seven and eight, and uh, this is n- not the first year that uh, Scott McKenna has uh, made the cut, but he's from Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church up in Scotland, and uh, Scott McKenna will be listening to his sermon titled "Resurrection: A, a Genre of Writing." And then a final contestant, contestant number eight, is from Pasadena Four Square Church in Pasadena, California. Uh, Dave Pinkston uh, presiding, and uh, we'll be listening to his sermon. I don't even know the name of it. I, it. I It doesn't even matter that it has a name. It's a train wreck. Best way I could describe it. So let's go ahead and um, get to it. 
Here's Scott McKenna, contestant number seven, and his sermon, Resurrection, a Genre of Writing. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Let us pray. Holy God, sacred mystery, bless our meditations that we may be still at one with you, that our thoughts may be shaped and informed by your presence. <clears throat> Rather than his word. Yeah, don't let your thoughts be actually shaped by his word. No, no. Go with the feelings thing. You know, be, let your thoughts be shaped by his presence. Whatever that means. And love. Amen. St. Paul said that Jesus was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. He appeared to James and the Apostles. And finally, he appeared to Paul himself. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul said that Jesus appeared. He appeared to a whole host of different people, men and women, and in numerous locations, on occasion, at the same time. What does it mean to say, Jesus appeared? Oh, ooh, pick me, pick me, I know. It means that Jesus actually rose bodily from the grave, because when you read the eyewitness accounts, it says that he made a point of saying he had flesh and bones. They said, and he said, touch me and see, you know, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And even this same risen Jesus, the one who rose bodily from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he appeared to the apostle Paul before he was even an apostle, uh, when he was Saul of Tarsus, and uh, and and appeared to him also. Yeah. So yeah, that's that that's what that means. He appeared. You know, it's like when uh, somebody you know comes to your house and they appear to in front of you at your house. That, that's what happened. There is no record in any of the Gospels of the actual resurrection. So? <laughs> uh, nobody was there to describe it to us, uh, but uh, we know what happened afterwards. Jesus walked out of the tomb. He appeared to people. Yeah, that's what the texts say. I mean, no record of the moment in which Jesus rises from the dead. Appearances of the Christ already risen from the dead are found in the later Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, but not in the earliest Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, i got to take issue with that. Um, read the Church Fathers. The Church Fathers who were alive at the time of the Apostles, especially the earliest ones, they say that Matthew wrote first, not Mark. Jesus rising from the dead is hidden, concealed in the darkness of the cave. The resurrection stories, the accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples and others, are like many other stories in the Bible. They are carefully crafted narratives weaving together mythology, spirituality, no, no. The Gospels are eyewitness testimony. They are not weaving together mythology and spirituality. You are lying to the people in your parish. Liturgy and fragments of history. Fragments of history. All that historical narrative, it's just fragmentary stuff. Uh, it's mostly myth. Okay. Yeah. What do you know then about Scott McKenna? He's a total unbeliever. The stories are intended for meditation. Says who? John, in his gospel, says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. John tells us the reason why he wrote. They are to be read imaginatively. Mm. In a washing machine manual, 
words only have one meaning. This is not so in the Bible. Right. See, the Bible isn't a washing machine manual, so it, it can be bent and twisted into any old kind of way that you desire in your spirituality. Got it. We are told that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. St. Paul tells us that. And the third day is stressed in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, Jesus said he would rise on the third day. The story of Christ appearing on the road to Emmaus. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter told the crowd that Jesus was raised on the third day. Details in Scripture are seldom incidental. Mm. Names, storylines, and imagery are almost always suggestive of other stories. Yes, there was lots of suggestive stuff going on there, yeah. So, in the book of Genesis, in the story of Abraham and the gruesome binding of his son Isaac, we are told that the drama unfolds on the third day. We read, After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Yeah, that's right. Genesis 22 is a type and shadow account pointing to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, God himself providing the lamb. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked and saw the place far away. It was on Mount Moriah that Abraham prepared the wood and fire, bound his son to the altar. Yep, that's true. Raised the knife for his sacrifice. A ghastly story, a vivid story with many meanings. But the drama took place on the third day. Out of death, possible death, came life, new life. A new beginning for Israel. In the book of Exodus, in the story of the Ten Commandments, it is on the third day. Yeah, you got to pay attention to that third day stuff in the Old Testament because the book of Hebrews explains to us that the Old Testament is type and shadow. The substance is Christ. Moses ascended Mount Sinai. Amidst the thunder, lightning, and blast of a trumpet, Moses entered the thick darkness where God was. Crucially, Moses encountered the Eternal on the third day. These details are not coincidental. This is I agree, they all point to Christ. Genre of writing, and a detail used in one place may be suggestive of other stories. Yeah, again, the book of Hebrews explains this to us quite clearly. Uh, the Old Testament is type and shadow, tupaskaiskia, and the New Testament, the reality is found in Christ. All of that stuff is pointing to Jesus. The, the scriptures are about him. If we were Jews in the first century, and we heard the phrase, the third day, we could not but fail to think of these other stories. and what Right, that's the point. The, all of those stories evoke the, point, the, the, the substance to which they were always pointing to. And the substance is Christ. Might mean. In our gospel lesson this morning, we are told that the women wonder how they will move the stone, the large stone, from the entrance of the tomb. On arrival, 
the women find that the heavy stone is already rolled back. In the later Gospel of John, the risen Christ is able to enter and leave locked rooms. Paul told us that the risen Christ appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at once. If we read scripture, this scripture story this morning, literally, we may... So notice, he is spending his entire sermon really kind of setting up this idea, don't read this as real historical narrative, despite the fact the text says it's eyewitness account and that this really took place. Don't read it that way. Reasonably ask, why is the stone rolled back? Surely... See, the fact that the stone was rolled back proves that you can't take it literally. The risen Christ did not need to move it to escape. Maybe it was moved so that the disciples can look in the tomb. Yeah, if it was still there, you know, when they arrived, they would assume the body was still in the tomb. Yeah, Ease of convenience in investigating the tomb, you know what I mean? Perhaps it was moved so that the women and the disciples could look inside. Mm-hmm. But together, they could have moved it themselves. There is a falseness about this detail in the story. Oh, falseness. How did you figure that out? Is it a falseness because it just doesn't jive with your understanding that this can't possibly be real? No, and actually the whole thing has a ring of truth about it. And here's the thing. All of the eyewitnesses record the same detail, that the stone had been rolled away. The women are hardly likely to set out on the journey and halfway there think, oh, how are we going to move that stone? Maybe they were aware that the you know, soldiers were present. All you need is a good sturdy fellow When the women do enter the tomb, gaze into the darkness of the cave, they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting to the right. The young man told the women that Jesus, who had been crucified, was raised from the dead. A young man dressed in white, an angel. Is there another story in the Bible which involves a stone and an angel? Yeah, Daniel in the lion's den. Of course there is. The story may draw us back to the story of Jacob at Bethel. Oh, yeah, see, Jacob at Bethel, right, okay. Jacob used one of the stones at Bethel as a pillow, huge stone. In his dream, he saw a ladder on earth the top of which reached to heaven. On the ladder, angels were ascending and descending. In the dream, the Lord God stood beside Jacob and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. In Matthew's account, the angel has descended from heaven. On waking from his dream, Jacob said, Keywords, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He named the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. Jacob said, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Through mention of the stone in the faith narrative, and the presence of the angel Both Mark and Matthew hint that the empty tomb is the gate of heaven. They want us to make that association. It is possible that the angel is a reminder of the angel Michael, the great prince who was prophesied to appear when death, when the dead shall rise. And in the Gospel of John, Two angels appear where Jesus had lain, one at the foot and one at the head. This is reminiscent of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, 
the most sacred place in Israel, the most sacred place in the world for the Jews, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the lid of the covenant, head and at the foot, were cherubim. Is it possible that the angels in the resurrection narratives suggest to us that this empty cave is now the Holy of Holies? Uh-huh, exactly. That's the type and shadow. I, funny enough, I drew similar conclusions regarding the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, in my Easter sermon. But notice what he's doing here. He's using, literally using type and shadow to basically say you can't take these things literally. The most sacred place on earth, the resurrection of Jesus. I hope by now you see that resurrection stories, like most biblical stories, call for our imaginative engagement. No, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection take no imagination. That's not why they were written. At its core, resurrection is about union with God. What? Jesus is not immortal. Uh, Yeah, he is. Because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead because he is immortal. Okay, all right. At its core... Resurrection is about union with God. Huh? Jesus is not immortal because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead because he is immortal. Okay. Jesus repeatedly taught his followers to see the kingdom of heaven within themselves. Uh, No. To say the kingdom of heaven is in your midst is not say, is the same thing as saying it's inside of you. He said to them, I and the Father are one. I am in you, and you are in me. So notice, McKenna sounds like he's teaching a form of monism, which is you know comes from the Eastern religions, Buddhism and you know things like that. The immortal is already within us. No. Taught them to believe not only of himself but of themselves. The immortal dwells within each one of you. Having lived a life in God on earth, in death he was alive. In Judaism, Moses is raised to new life, and so too Enoch and Elijah. In an argument with the Sadducees, Jesus said that the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, are already alive in God, in a mystical vision, in a moment of transfiguration. Jesus stood alongside Moses and Elijah, who were already alive in God, already raised from the dead. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He taught his believers, his followers. So you're taking that text and pitting it against the actual historicity of the resurrection accounts. Unbelievable. That God dwells within each one of them. The immortal dwells within each one of us. What does this look like? Yeah, I'm curious. What does it look like? The spiritual writer... Martin Laird tells the story of a young prisoner who self-harmed in order to escape the hurt inside. With the help of the Prison Phoenix Trust, the prisoner began to learn how to pray. Laird writes, After learning how to meditate and practicing it twice a day for several weeks, the young prisoner speaks movingly of what he has learnt. I just want you to know that after only four weeks of meditating, half an hour in the morning and at night, the pain that I have had for years is not so bad. And for the first time in my life, I can see a tiny spark of something within myself that I... Tiny spark? Okay. ...like, accept... 
You see, the spark of the divine, monism, Eastern religions, not Christianity. And love. Resurrection is something that happens in the heart. What? It is in here. Uh, no, Jesus' resurrection didn't happen in anybody's heart. Jesus' resurrection took place in physical time and space here on planet Earth. In the soul, in the consciousness that we taste immortality. When Paul said Christ appeared, he meant that Christ appeared to the inner eye. No, that's not what he meant at all. To those open to the possibility, to those prepared to penetrate beneath the surface of Bible stories. Yeah, only through the inner eye. You get past this literal stuff, and then in your inner eye you can experience resurrection in your heart. Beneath the surface of the world, into the darkness of the mind's cave, into the stillness. Yeah, there's lots of darkness in the guy's mind's cave, that's for sure. The soul. That's where Christ is born. Oh. Again and again and again. Mm. Amen. Nope, can't say I'm into that. Okay, I'm <clears throat> going to try to regroup here and uh, see if I can <clears throat> get myself to uh, rework my own inner turmoil so that I'm able to get to the end of this broadcasting week. We'll take a break real quick. <laughs> Collect my thoughts, and then we'll get to the last contestant, contestant number eight. Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Your uh, My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. When we come back, our eighth and final contested in the 2018 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. 
knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who love theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Gospels and the Resurrection accounts are not mythology with tiny bits of history in them, because they're not. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Oh, by the way, there's three buttons. Forgot about the become a patron one. I always do that sometimes. Anyway, when you join our crew, rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is uh, Powder Monkey, and that's $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made it $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to do that via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button and filling that out, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, you know, I almost don't even want to play the music, but let me do this just so we can say we did it right contestant number eight the last of them and yes it is a stinker uh let's do this hey ho the good the bad the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service 
Today's sermon comes to us via Pasadena Foursquare Church, Pasadena, California. We're going to be listening to David Pinkston, and I don't have a name for this one. I'll just kind of make one up along the way. All I can say is that this guy, in opening his mouth, actually demonstrates he's not qualified biblically to be a pastor anywhere. This is just a mess, best way I could put it. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's David Pinkston's Easter sermon from <clears throat> Pasadena Four Square Church. Here we go. So um, I have a uh, 45 to 50 minute message that I'm going to... No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to make sure you're really hungry for that Easter lunch. Um, there's so much I could say right now. Yeah, why don't you start with, you know, maybe a biblical text, um, you know, that recounts the uh, the resurrection and what Jesus did. How about that? Um, I'm so thankful for the young folks in this church. So, yeah. Um, I, listen, some Easter's were really ahead of the curve. Some Easter's were not. And I sprung that dance on, on them. I said, I need a dance in two weeks. Can you make it happen? They did. Two weeks, brothers and sisters. These young ones need to know that they are loved and appreciated. Um, you can't tell. That's not a stock uh, picture right there. That's a fresco found in Turkey up in the mountains. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe. I'm going to go quickly. You'll get to your lunch. Don't worry. But um, there's, you, you, it's hard to tell. But this, this is a picture of the risen Jesus who's pulling Adam and Eve out of death's grip. Okay? And we're going to unpack that a little bit, but first... You're going to unpack the fresco. Got it. Um, I want to tell you a story. Okay. Um, this is a picture of my dad and my, my grandpa, Grandpa Pinkston. And... Um, uh, on both sides of my family, there's a long line of, of abuse, abuse of all kinds. Um, I didn't know this un- until more recently, probably within the last um, six, seven years, that my grandpa was abusive to my dad, physically abusive. Uh, when my dad became a Christian, uh, he heard God say to him, you have to forgive your dad. He said, I hate my dad. I hate him. And you, So your dad received direct revelation from God. Got it. Well, let's work with that. Let's work on that together. So, so Jesus told him, let's work with that. Like Jesus was his personal inner therapist. Got it. And eventually my dad began to, to start the forgiving process. Um, and then that, there came a fateful day where... He heard God say to him, I want you to go embrace your dad. And he said, absolutely not. He said, let's work on that. And so, you know, like physical touch on the Pinkston side of the family is not, unless it's an abusive hit, it's not very common to get a hug. In fact, it wasn't practiced at all. And so my dad finally caved in. He said, all right, God, I'll, I'll go to my dad and, and I'll embrace him. See, I'm, I'm supposed to dance. No, uh, I love it when things like that happen. Spontan- spontaneity. So um, keep things light. You know, we have, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that throughout our morning, there's been highs and lows because that's life. Okay, there's joy, there's lull, there's sadness, there's pain, there's a return to consolation. So that was um, joy. That a, a return to consolation. Okay. Spring out of our audio system just now. So my dad went to go hug his dad. He finally built up the courage and the tenacity to say, all right, I'll go embrace my father. And he did. And my grandpa went like this. And so my dad like most of us, said, one and done. I did it. And Jesus said, go back and hug him again the next time you see him. 
My dad said, are you kidding me? But he did. And then, you know what happened? But around the seventh, eighth time that my dad did, imagine the awkwardness and the courage to be able to do this. Couldn't be more awkward than the sermon. The seventh or eighth time, my grandpa went like this. From that point forward, it started a friendship. And it went from a hated relationship to a relationship that is now healed. Now, I didn't know about any of this until about six, seven years ago. Because all I've known is my grandpa giving me shoulder rubs and checking out these guns. And I, it, that's, that's what I was raised with, so I had no idea. The power of embrace is the power to transform. You heard what Andre shared. By the mm, way, yeah, the power to embrace is the power to transform. It says no biblical text anywhere, but yeah, he, he got this from a greeting card or something. I don't know. Andre, if you're available, let's unpack it next, next week. Are you willing to go there? I mean, if, if it's okay with you. I don't want to at some say that. Nah, I'm in seminary too, but I have to get up and speak every Sunday. Ah, so he he's currently in seminary. Yeah, um, probably shouldn't be preaching anywhere yet. He clearly hasn't properly studied and shown himself approved of anything. All right, I won't publicly pressure you. Oh, okay, I'll hold you to that. Um, you don't have to share the entire time. We'll unpack it together. But it, it, we'll talk tomorrow. How's that? Um, but the, the power of embrace is the power to change. And that's, that's my point. Um, that, that's your point for Easter Sunday. Got it. I hate technology sometimes. So for those of you that are visiting us, this is really... Um, the expression of who we are, art, mission, and spiritual formation. Art, every se- Art, mission, and spiritual formation. Wow. When you look at, uh, like, Acts chapter 2, the early church was marked by uh, a dedication to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, and the breaking of bread. Yeah, that's the list. This guy doesn't seem to be interested in any of that stuff. One of us here in this room is a creative. Whether you feel that way or not, you may not be a visual artist, but you are made in God's image. You are a reflection of the creativity of God. You, mm, Yeah, let's talk about how we've fallen into sin. God's masterpiece. Every one of us here is a creative force in this world. And what's being required right now of those of us who are becoming alive in Christ is that we're bringing a new imagination because it's required to to heal the divides in this world. Mm, New imagination required to heal divides. Got it. It's needed and it's necessary. We're also a community of mission, not imposing our will on others, but proposing the love of God. Love until they ask why, because we are loved without a why. Did you know that? You are loved. Did you get that from a fortune cookie? Why? Spiritual formation simply means that there are generations, not one generation, several generations that are hungering for authentic healing and meaningful relationships. Mm. We need the generations. And if there are any old folks in this room that look down on the current generation, stop it. Stop it. You just saw the young generation offer you something. Yeah, scolding your elders. Yeah, way to go. Yeah. Man, this is just... Ah! They are not less than you. (laughs) And to the young ones, I say, you know, look to your elders. Love your elders. They have something to offer you. Um, How are we becoming an emotionally healthy people? That's yeah, how? Please explain how you're doing that. Kind of community that we seek to be. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about embrace. Because embracing is something that ha- when you embrace somebody, say for 30 seconds. Yeah. I wish I had more time this morning. Well, you, when you embrace for someone for 30 seconds, what it does neurochemically is it releases oxytocin. It releases, and that's called the love drug. In other words, when you embrace somebody, you, you are 
letting them know that they are safe, that they're connected. The skin is the largest organ in the body. Largest organ in the body. Yeah. Um, why aren't you preaching a biblical text about the resurrection of Jesus? And that's supposed to, that means something. Oh, yeah. So you're exegeting skin. Got it. In a post-Me Too world, hashtag Me Too world, women need to know through embrace, not, not weird embrace, but, but through the, like, I'm a dad. I have a daughter. I embrace her constantly because I want her to know what a healthy, masculine love looks like. I want her to know that I, this is what non-agenda love looks like. When, when my kids were really young, one of the things that I did before they fell asleep is I gazed into their eyes. Because I wanted to, one of the last things that they saw was what non-agenda love looks like. Because I, want, I was preparing them to know this is what God... So your agenda was to demonstrate non-agenda love. Got it. Love looks like. And you know what's funny? This isn't in any of my notes. You know what's funny is that when, when none of them ever said, what are you doing? They just look back. They just look back. Because I wanted them to know this is normal. This is what healthy love looks like. And by the way, I didn't do that so that I could preach on it. I did it because I loved them. So what about us in this room that didn't get that kind of affection? It can still get healed. You say, well, my father never touched me. My father never embraced me. Well, you have a brother or a sister next to you who's willing to do that. You also have elders in this room who are not perverts and will embrace you and love you for who you are, where you are right now. Because that's what the Jesus family does is in our pain and in our woundedness, we're willing to embrace one another and get the, the, the neurochemical hormone that's, that, that gets released and says, you're safe. Because what embracing does is it lets us know you are trusted and you are cared for where you're at. Jesus models this. And the scriptures is so great. When Jesus is baptized, he hears the Father's embrace. You're my son. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. What did Jesus... So that voice from heaven was a big hug from dad up above. Got it. Earn that. Nothing. And each one of us here in this room can have that experience. You can get a big hug from the Father too. Be a student of Jesus is to have his experience of God. That's what it means to be a so-called disciple. We don't use that language in, in, in English. So let me use a different word. Apprenticed. You are being apprenticed to have his experience. Jesus tells a story. Uh, of, I'm being apprenticed to have Jesus' experiences. Yeah. So-called prodigal son. It's, it's a misnomer. It's a, it's a, it's unfortunately, we relate to hit the prodigal son too much, and we don't realize that parable is actually about the father. So the, it's really the parable of the compassionate father, because the father is the one who's the main character in the story. When the prodigal son goes back, what does it say? Jesus tells a story, and it says, he fell on his son's neck. That's what it is to be embraced, is to have someone fall. Have you ever had hug someone so much that they lift you up? Right? It's a powerful experience. There's an article in NPR that, that I just referred to. And, and, and check this out. Embracing someone lowers their blood pressure. It lowers the stress hormone called cortisol. And it enables better sleep and it can increase your social connection and sense of belonging everything that we've been talking about this morning this is what it, it and some reports have even said that in being embraced i love it when people take pictures of my slides please take pictures uh um it's even said that it can reduce physical pain to be embraced 
A soft touch on the arm makes the orbital frontal cortex light up like those other rewarding stimuli. So touch is a very powerful rewarding stimulus, just like the chocolate that you find in the cupboard at home. Uh, The surging of oxytocin makes you feel more trusting and connected. So say the experts. And what the Christian vision is, is that Jesus is the icon of God's love, of God's vulnerability, God's embrace. His suffering and his... Did you get this from a Rob Bell book? Where did you get this? I'd like to hear it from the scriptures, please. That sets the tone for the nature of God's love. God is not the imposer, but the inviter. God is the victim, not the perpetrator. And what the Christian vision is revealing is that God's love is that which embraces. Why? Because we see that violence is very, very prevalent in human nature. But that violence does not get the final say in Jesus' life. And I'm going to say, not in yours either. Yay. This whole resurrection movement is a monumental leap forward for humanity. So let me give you some biblical context for what I mean. What is a resurrection movement? There's a genealogy. The Bible loves genealogies. You get to numbers and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't care who begat whom. You know, but it's meaningful to a Jewish, so we, we can't look down upon it. It's important. And in the gospel, there's this sacred genealogy that Luke unpacks. And, and it's, you know, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot. But it's very intentional the way that, he, that Luke is unpacking this. And by the time he gets to the beginning, or rather end, depending on how you look at it, Enosh was the son of Seth, who's the son of Adam. And Adam was, what does those words say? That's a good starting place. You said it, not me. So I just want you to know the Bible says this. I know a lot of people tend to be resistant, which is so weird to me. It's so weird to me that when the Bible says that the human parents, if you will, are the children of God, that we'd say, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. Do you know what that implies? But the genealogy in Adam starts this way, and it's a good starting place. And Luke is very intentional about this, because why? In the, tr- in, in the Jewish tradition, Adam and Eve, if you will, are the symbolic parents of humanity. And what Luke is saying here is that this gospel message is not just for the Christians, it's for everybody. Thank you. I'm trying. When it comes to Jesus' life and ministry, he identifies... Now, check this out. Jesus is not identifying with the powers that be. He's identifying with the sufferers. Now, if the second Adam, which is how the Bible frames Jesus... Remember the gardener story? And, and Mary sees, thinks that it's the gardener. Well, what gardener do you think that's in reference to? Adam! And so she thinks... Adam is tending to the garden. Well, it is. It's the second Adam. It's the new Adam. It's the Adam that God is creating a new humanity, a new human family out of. And it's, it, and it's, and, and, it, oh, oh, when you heard Aaron's peace, that was not abstract. It's real. Jesus is identifying with every single one of those people that Aaron ministers to. Thank God she gets paid to do it because she does it with altruism. No matter what. Right. I'm glad she does it with altruism because, you know, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Your job is if you're doing it with altruism, you are a gardener in the Garden of Eden. No, no. That Garden of Eden thing in the, um, you know, as far as where Jesus was buried and crucified, it points back to the Garden of Eden because that's the place where we all fell into sin. You are a gardener in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the second Adam, and he, they, she thinks he's the gardener. That's kind of the important pit, bit there. So Luke is situating Jesus within the human family. 
And Jesus is not the exception, but the connection. Jesus right. is not the exception, but the example. Okay. So from a, a psychological point of view, and I've said this before, let me say it again in this context. Psychology and spirituality are opposed to one another like a finger and a thumb. If you want to grasp something, you need a finger and a thumb. Right. No biblical text talks about the importance of understanding psychology. Yeah. So they don't displace one another. They're, they're in partnership with one another. They're not in competition with each other. A lot of people in the religious world think that if you bring in psychology... I would beg to differ. There are a lot of psychologists who are absolutely opposed to Christianity. You're going to displace spirituality. No, you're becoming more of a complete person because of it. So to become an emotionally healthy person is to become a spiritually potent human being. Um... So, as humans potentially develop, we go from small circle, the baby that Andrew just talked, talked about, where babies, thankfully, can only care for themselves, right? They only think, because we're supposed to at that age. Can you imagine popping out a child, and the child goes, why am I here? What is the meaning of all this? I need a, a manual right now for what it is to be a human being. No. A ba- all a baby can do is receive love. Okay? So that's a necessary starting place. But as the circle expands, hopefully, some people are just raging narcissists and that circle never expands. But hopefully, if you're becoming a, a, a larger human being, that thing expands. It expands to caring for your family then it's supposed to expand to caring for your group. Then it's supposed to expand to caring for your nation. Unfortunately, most circles stop there. Tragic. It stops at ethnocentricity. It stops at national identity. Sadly, most... Terrible. Uh, this is such a bane. Oh, man. What does this have to do with Jesus' death and resurrection again? ...function from there. And they don't give a rip... I wish I could use stronger language. They don't give a rip about what happens outside their national borders. But that's not where Jesus is functioning from. No. And so if you're his student, if you're his apprentice, that circle's got to widen to the whole world. Yeah. Not just your national identity. Exactly. Not just your own ethnicity. And certainly not just your skin color. Mm-hmm. So God's vision, according to the Bible, is for the whole world. Both scriptures attest to this. And you can see it up there. I don't have time to go through it because we're running out of time, unfortunately. Oh, technology. You can see these verses here and what they're standing towards. So important question to ask of ourselves is how big is your God? I don't know. I mean, he, he's bigger than... Um, I, I don't know. I mean... The reality is, is the God I worship, his name is Jesus, at least, you know, God, second person of the Holy Trinity. So I'd say, what, he's about 5'10", 5'11", maybe, I don't know. What image are you working with? Is God big enough just for you, your family, your nation? Or is God in the business of loving the whole world? Is your image of God, your understanding of God? Yeah, since Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that he's commanded, yeah, I'm going to go with um, he's already told us to be kind of world-minded as far as, like, goal of making disciples. So, yeah, I, what, what's your point again? Embrace big enough for you. Do you know that you're embraced? Yeah. Is your image of God big enough for your family, especially those family members? We all have them. Is your God, I love that, if you think you're spiritually mature, go spend two weeks with your family. Some years I'm really good. Other years it's like, ah! Is your God not just for your, you and your nation, but for those who out, suffer outside your national walls? Listen, one of the reasons why Jesus gets rejected as a Messiah is because he did not establish a political rule. Why? Well, I can't fully understand and express why, but I can say this. because he, I know, because his kingdom isn't of this earth. That's what he said. They're obsessed with politics. And what Jesus does is he says, no, 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 no. Deal with this first. Then it ends in politics. It doesn't start with politics. It starts with you. 
If you're becoming a healed person, it will affect and influence politics. Don't start there. Stop there. Or move to that. That's why I believe he is the Messiah. Because he's saying, get it right in here. Get it healed in here. Then when it comes to politics, you will be a holy person. Jesus didn't say any of that. Change for the good. It's not just for Mother Teresa. It's for you too. So Jesus is like Mother Teresa. Got it. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, God was saying through this second Adam, I'm creating a new family on earth. Those who came before the resurrection, by the way, were not left out. And I don't have time to unpack these verses, but there's a mysterious one in here, and I love it. He has no time. He's run out of time. Thank God. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Mysterious verse. I don't fully get it. I don't know. Read the Nicene and Apostles' Creed. They talk about it. His descent into hell. But basically what Peter is saying is nobody got left behind. What? If you wanted out of the prison, he made it available. What? Nobody. You, you, you have that choice, apparently. Yeah, it's so mysterious you haven't actually read any of the commentaries on this, have you? So we see in the gospel narratives that Jesus was, not only, was not also not the only one resurrected. Uh, uh, uh. It, it's there. It's there. Okay? The tombs broke open and the bodies, not spirits, they didn't go in and float and haunt people. The bodies went of many holy people who had died and raised to life. It wasn't just about Jesus. He was saying, hey, folks, holy people who got it before I came, guess what? You get to go and bear testimony too. I'm bringing you with me. It doesn't say that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. It says he was the first fruits. It's powerful, I think. Nobody told me to see this, by the way. I had to discover it for myself. (laughs) Yeah, it shows. (laughs) In what is now modern-day Turkey, you'll see the artwork, and I'll, I'll begin to wrap up here. Finally, we're getting to the fresco, the thing he promised to preach on at the beginning of this thing. You'll see here that Jesus, the, the early, Christ, early Christians got it. Unfortunately, we kind of were reductionistic about the resurrection. But you'll see in many of these frescoes that were discovered in cave churches in now modern-day Turkey that Jesus is pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave. The symbolic parents for humanity. The symbolic parents for, of humanity. Not the exceptions. The- Not the symbolic parents of humanity. The actual historical parents of humanity. All of us have descended from them. Expressions. Okay? He's pulling the human family out of the grave. It's for... Ev- no, sorry. This is... You cannot exegete that fresco and say, therefore, it means that every human being will be saved. Buddy, which means the good news is not just for you. It's for the whole human family. Duh. (laughs) Of course. That's why Jesus said in Luke 24, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. This is a good thing. You know, when, when the Latin folks, the people who spoke in Latin, called us homo sapiens... Were they being ironic or moronic? Are we homo sapien, the, the wise humans? You know that civilizations thrive on escalating violence, right? Does that sound wise to you? I think it's a very strange thing that we were called... It sounds to me like you've been catechized into post-modernity, not biblical Christianity. Wise ones. And yet here we are. (laughs) And I think the Christian message is saying that you actually can become a wise one. I don't think in some case, in most cases, it's a given. (laughs) But I do think it's something that we can grow into. So, and and you'll... uh, So we're just getting a lot of the musings of his thoughts and stuff, yeah. You guys are getting hungry. I'm hearing some stomachs. I just want to say that Jesus... The resurrection shows the embrace of God towards the human family. Uh 
And I think that's important. So I'll, I'll, I'll end here. Good. So you think. I think the resurrection shows the embrace of God towards the human family. The end. <laughs> Took almost a 30 minutes to get there, but hey, you know, what, what, what would the world be like without some kind of unfolding mystery and, you know, storytelling? Because, yeah, I think you get the idea. Still have to figure out what I'm going to name that one. But uh, there you go. That's uh, our eighth and final contestant in this year's 2018 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And got to admit, man, I'm glad that I've gotten that behind me. Woo! Yeah, now i got to go my, see my therapist. Anyway... <laughs> We will have the ability for you to vote on these at fightingforthefaith.com. The voting will be able to stay. I think we're going to try to keep it up for a week. And our intention, and hopefully we'll be able to pull this off technically, is to have a live stream next Friday uh, to announce the winner and show you some of the um, chicanery from (laughs) the contestants this year. So what would you think? Be sure to head over to fightingforthefaith.com, fightingforthefaith.com. We'll have it up at the you know top part of the uh, the website there for you to be able to choose who you think should win this year's coveted Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So I think you get the point. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is... Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at fire Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>